this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, where it is my job to help you punch above your weight when it comes to selling your company. Today, we've got a fun story from Ben Kelly. Ben Kelly used to work for Elon Musk at SpaceX. He left SpaceX to start his own company, the launch company, and sold it less than five years later. Great story, tons to learn from. I want you to listen for a couple of very specific things. Listen to how he protected his IP, intellectual property, when he was doing consulting, which he did to fundraise and kind of cash flow his business. It's the protection of the IP that I want you to make sure you listen for. He'll talk about how he bootstrapped his business, invested 1200 bucks, and ultimately built an aerospace company by getting his customers to help him finance the business. He'll talk about the fine line between scrappy and crappy and how to toe that fine line. He'll also talk about how he structured his deal. I know a lot of you may be looking at a private equity investment, and here you're going to need to separate your role as owner of your company and that of CEO. And I think Ben does a really nice job in this episode talking about the two different hats he wears and how he structured his deal to make sure he was protected in both areas. Here to tell you the entire story is Ben Kelly. Ben Kelly, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Glad to be here. Thanks. I want to go back to Ohio, where okay. you started your education. So I'm trying to tell my son about, and he's too young to understand it, but how engineering and business skills, when you combine those two, it's like a superpower, right? Yeah, absolutely. You did that. Tell me about your education, because I want to tell him about it after the show. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I actually started education. I went to University of Alaska, and I got an undergrad in mechanical engineering. And then, um, and I was interested in business then, but I'll be honest with you, I'm only ever really interested in business as like a way to do cool things. You know, I, I don't love business for business's sake. It's this convenient vehicle for, for doing really cool stuff with, with hopefully really cool people. And so um, I ended up going to grad school at Ohio State and I fell backwards into this business builders club, which was just a group of young people met, I think every Tuesday night um, in the student union and just would pitch each other ideas, try to form little teams. And, you know, and this was a hundred thousand years ago when the iPhone was fairly new. And so if it was, you know, so everybody's building apps and they're trying to build the next thing. And I always felt like kind of like, you know, the odd duck, because I was like, well, I want to, you know, I want to build hardware. 
And um, I ended up, you know, kind of working on some of those things. I had a friend in my grad school lab. We were kind of tinkering on a little hardware product together. It was like this thermoelectric generator that um, would produce, you know, five, five volts and, and an amp of power to like trickle charge an iPhone if you were off the grid and convert heat to electricity, no moving parts. And so we were, we were always playing with that stuff. But I ended up convincing my advisor that this business class would, would should count towards my degree as an elective. And I had to like petition the 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 dean, I think, maybe the board. Anyways, it was a big deal, but it ended up being a really transformative class. It was um, at night and it was half engineers and half MBAs. And they took real IP off the Ohio State shelves off the back catalog and they handed it to us and they said, pick the IP you like, build a business plan and try to create a business out of it. And they had investors come in and we did this whole thing. And I was just like, oh, this is great. Like we ended up working on this little cancer detection thing. And my, my master's was in micro and nanofluidics. And so this was a, a nanofluidic device. And so I kind of knew what I was talking about a little bit. And it was really, really fun to work with the business cats on that and put all that together. So I was, I was hooked after that. Um, oh, wow. I, That's incredible. Yeah. yeah I'd love to find out what happened to all those folks that, those MBAs plus the engineers, like, do you know, like the, the backstories of any of them uh, at this point? Anybody no, going to- I didn't, I didn't keep up with too many of them, but I know that some people came out of that class and they were like bound and determined. They were like, yeah, no, we're going to go raise money. And they pitched to these investors, like the last day of class. And I think some of them, you know, joined up and, and went and did some ventures. So real things were coming out of that and, and real IP. It was really cool. And after that, you went to work for young Mr. Musk at some point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Gosh, so spring of 2012, I, I joined up with SpaceX. Um, they were just starting to build this launch site in California on Vandenberg Air Force Base, um, South Launch Complex 4 East or Slick 4E as we called it. It was this old Titan pad and um, we kind of came in. Some people had started a little bit before and were starting to convert it. I came in kind of as it was ramping up and um, was assigned a couple pad systems didn't know what those were, but had to figure it out pretty quick. And this uh, is like the spaceship comes down and it's got to land on the barge, right? Well, that's next. This was actually, okay. this is a launch site first. So this is where, okay. this is the West coast site to shoot these polar orbits to shoot around the earth, north or south, north. And um, anyway, we ended up converting this whole site. It was, it was a ton of fun, um, but it was really, really, really hard work. And definitely school of hard knocks stuff. We learned a lot, ran into a lot of things. Um, and made, made a lot of mistakes, but had good leadership and had good mentorship and, and was able to kind of overcome that and, and learn a lot. But then, yes, after that, went, I actually quit and was like, hey, I'm going to go do a hardware startup. Thank you for the memories. And I think I, was, I moved to Seattle. And I think I was there six weeks and they came up and were like, hey, we're going to build these barges and land rockets on them in the ocean. It's like, dang, yeah, got to do that it. Sounds cool. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, it was too cool. Well, you sound like you have like a, like a kid in a candy store, you know, like you're working on these projects that are unbelievable. It's, it's fantastic. What's Elon Musk like to work for? Um, yeah. Is this part off the record? Can we stop the recording? No, it's on the record. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. With you. I, you know what the, the, the thing I'll say is, is Elon knows how to get the absolute most out of, out of people. Okay, and, we'll uh, leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. But you know what? I, I've seen a lot of people kind of get crunched up and, and, and shoot up. I got crunched up and shoot up a little bit, found myself on the backside and, and feel stronger for it. So overall, a great experience for me and, and a great process. And, yeah. So how did K2 start? What's the, what's the backstory there? Yeah. So the backstory is from the barge. I was um, I, I was on the barge uh, for SpaceX and, you know, we're a couple hundred miles out at sea we're on a support boat and we've got this barge and we're trying to land rockets on it. And they, 
at that point tended to come down and, and explode. Uh, you know, they would they, they would land and self-destruct more than they would land and, and still be a rocket. And um, and yeah, I think Elon t- coined the term "rud" rapid unplanned disassembly or something like that. But yeah, I think that's just descent. I think isn't it right? Yeah. yeah, they would just rud all over the deck. And so anyway, the punchline of the thing is we would fly drones from the support boat to the barge to be like. I was deck boss. So I had to like swing on this rope between the boat and the barge. And so we were just like, kind of like, is this safe? Well, not the swinging that was not safe, but the, the drone part is this safe to, for us to go over and, and be there. And I'm flying these drones. I was like, man, this technology has come a super long way. You know, this is 2014 into 15. So man, this technology has come a super long way, really, really quickly. And I grew up as a bush pilot in Alaska, flying groceries to towns off the grid, right off the road system. And I was like, man, I bet we could use this in Alaska. My brother was in oil and gas. I texted him when I got back to port. I was like, dude, I bet there's an opportunity here. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm up on the north slope of Alaska and, and they're just starting to talk about drones. And I was like, boom, there, perfect time, let's go. And so that's how we got into it. So what was the idea, that principle of K2? Like, what was the genesis of the idea? The whole idea was kind of how do we, how do we use drones to do dirty, dull, dangerous work that that prevents people from, from having to get, to get involved or get hurt. And, and also in Alaska, when you're talking about flying out to remote areas to, to monitor climate change or to look at, at, you know, map different mineral rights areas for, for, for tribes and for regional corporations, it's one of those things where it's like, gosh, they're, they're spending $10,000 an hour sometimes just getting humans out there and gear and equipment. And I was like, we could fly out with a backpack, hike in, map the whole thing and get, get out of Dodge. So it, it made a lot of sense to me. It, that was never the long-term plan. The, the plan was how do you bootstrap a company, make a little bit of money so you can eat and then figure out what the scalable opportunity is. We wanted to start building payloads to put under the drones. We wanted to start building different technologies to like enable the drones to work better in Arctic weather, things like that. But we, we had to eat. And so that's what we started off doing was a drone service company. And um, so when you say we had to eat, you mean you had to offer consulting services to other companies in order to use drones. Well, yeah, exactly. we, we did. Time. We, yeah, exactly. We sold our time. Um, and then we liked it cause it was a feedback loop and it was also, uh, a way to get paid to get smart. And, and I'm a big fan of getting paid to, to learn. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. Yeah. As, as we were going and then we ended up flying some of the first LIDAR on a multi-rotor in the state. And doing you lost some, like, me there. Stuff. LIDAR is a, is a, is a form of what well, navigation or yeah, it can be used for navigation. In this case, we were using, it was a rotating, it's a rotating laser beam. And what it's essentially okay. doing is it, it sends out this like PWM pulse width modulated thing. And it's listening for the echo, just like radar listens for echo, but it's at the speed of light. And then, so it can penetrate trees and find the ground and the tree layer. So it's like really great technology for, for doing sounding, for doing distance operations. It's, and so the original kind of monetization of K2 was billing for projects by the, by the hour, essentially hiring out your expertise to these companies that wanted to deploy drones. Did that ever evolve? Like what was the evolution? How did the launch company come out of that? Yeah. So the the way the launch company came out of that was we found that essentially, you know, we had put the cart before the horse and we were very excited about a technology, but we weren't necessarily selling a solution. And I think that's something I try to talk to people a lot about now is like, oftentimes, especially in aerospace, people are selling a technology, but you, you should be selling a solution. Right. And so we're like, oh, well, this drone can do X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay. You know, but we weren't able to speak, to speak in the terms of like, it increases safety this much. It's going to save you this many people hours. It's going to do X, Y, and Z because we didn't know yet. <laughs> you know, we, we weren't able to just create these statistics from thin air. And so 
it kind of created an issue. And so we ended up pivoting to training because a lot of people were bringing drones in house fast, pretty quickly, like, cool, well, we'll train. And then that didn't see the numbers just didn't add up. The juice wasn't worth the squeeze. And so what had kind of secretly kept us going during that time, you know, we never took on any, any money, any debt, anything, um, was I was moonlighting and consulting to space companies and, um, selling my expertise again, but, but this time space companies. And I guess I just kind of had this moment where I was like, if these people will call a drone company in Alaska to help them with their spaceship problems, there may be a market opportunity. Now I'm no business genius, but I just put two and two together here. Right. <laughs> and so in the, in the January of 2019, so just I'm pushing three years now, but we, we pivoted over and became the launch company. And um, that felt really audacious to me because keep in mind, you know, I was 20, I was just maybe hitting 30 and had, you know, had been in the industry six years, maybe not even. And it was just one, of the, but, but the gift of SpaceX was we did so much in such a compressed amount of time that you, you really felt like a couple of decades of experience of the things you've been a part of and things we'd seen. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of how launch company started. I was like, well, what if I just did this thing that makes money, but I did, I stopped doing it in secret and I told people about it. Right. So you're moonlighting, helping these, these companies. And then yeah. the launch company, was it set up as a consultancy to begin with, or did you always have the hardware vision in mind? Like, to take me through what your original business model was. Yeah, it was honestly very similar to what I did with K2, um, just in a different space where I was like, well, I definitely want to build hardware. I definitely want to help these companies quit reinventing the wheel around launching rockets. I was just watching people go through the same pain of these of these very convoluted cycles and i was like man we can interrupt that cycle but the way to do it is we have to just kind of jump in now there was so many companies that were so far down the road that if you tried to sell them a complete solution they'd be like no not interested and it was funny because i, I had learned the power of market research at this point the hard way and i was asking I was like hey what if you could just lease a launch site and they're like no 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 like we do this all ourselves we're vertically integrated we're blah blah Fast forward two years and everybody's like, yeah, we would love to lease a launch site from, me, from you. This is horrible. This is hard. And so we're seeing a lot of that traction start to happen. So our early bets were right, but we were able to like iterate our early bets in real time because we're, we're helping companies get to launch. We're building bona fides, we're building expertise. And then finally that, that step happens where I remember I was on a customer site. We we're trying to get these things called QDs. They're a fueling uh, fitting that half of it is on the ground, half of it's on the rocket. They mate together when the rocket takes off, they have to snap shut, not leak, and um, you know, let the rocket go to space. But you need them for spacecraft, for both stages of the rocket, for interstage, and all these places on the vehicle. And this company just could not provide them to us. They refused. And I was like, well, send us data and send us this. And they're like, no, 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 no. You send us $100,000 and in six months, we'll send you a prototype. And I was like, man, these guys do not understand new space. And I was on my soapbox having a rant. And my client looks at me and goes, why don't you just build these for us? And again, you know, real business genius here. I was just like, okay. And so we, uh, we went from a blank sheet of paper, working through ASME standards, working through seal designs, through the Parker manual, like all of this, like really esoteric stuff. And we, we put a part on their vehicle for test in eight weeks. Um, yeah. And I was like, hmm, we're onto something here. And this and, is just th this little widget that had, yeah. that, that, so it's, it's not like a launch site. It's like a little piece of the puzzle. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and the model became like, well, there's a gold rush going on. Let's sell some picks and shovels. And um, so we started selling these, these QDs and, and we didn't even really market them. Like the other company, remember this, this guy, and I, I'm good friends with him. He's a great guy. They called me and he's like angry. And he's at another company. He goes, well, I heard you sold QDs to so-and-so. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we did. He goes, we need QDs. I was like, would you like to buy some? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And those, and both of those companies have since flown, flown our, our QDs on their vehicle. And what we did then is we, the thing I think we did well is we designed them to be modular. So they're all the same. There's none are precious, right? They're designed to be the same. So you can get them quickly and off the shelf. And what I started to realize is like, oh, what SpaceX did on the vehicle side, disrupting the, this, the, this time scale and the, the supply chain, we can do this on the supply chain side. The, all these suppliers to aerospace are like, oh yeah, we need six figures and we're going to kind of goof around for a while. And we're like, hey man, here's a part. And, and space companies love that because they're out of time, they're out of budget. And they, and what, what you're really selling in the aerospace sector is relief. Like when somebody can call you and be like, can you do this insane thing? And in no time flat and you say, yes, like that's the best feeling in the world for them. And, and for us yeah. too. Like, Let yeah. me pause you here. Cause, cause yeah, sorry. Cause when I went to university, I would never have gotten into engineering. So I took an arts degree and the engineers were the cool. smart kids. You went to an engineering school and then you went to another engineering school. So you're going to have to <laughs> yeah. be very slow with me. Assume that I know nothing about aerospace. Okay. But I do, <laughs> I do know that Jeff Bezos has got something he's trying to put up in orbit. I think he already has. Richard Branson's got this thing that looks totally different on the pictures that I've seen that goes up right. and like a, like a kind of a crazy airplane that goes. And of course, SpaceX the physical hardware all looks totally different to me. Mm, yeah. Like to my eye, it looks, some look like more like the shuttle and others look more like airplanes that have like, how is it possible to create the same widgets, these QDs that would work on Bezos's aircraft as well as Elon Musk? Like that seems really out there to me. No, that's, that's a great point. And, and so the key in, engineering is solving the problem at the interface. And so the interface is just like, where does their stuff end and where does the other stuff start? And, and man, actually, this is something that I've ranched up before and I'll try not to go on my soapbox. Projects fall apart at interfaces. People can tend to tend to get the big pieces figured out pretty well, but then getting those pieces to, to like go together and work together and, and translate, whether that's code, you know, whether it's electrons or atoms or bits or, or fluid particles, it's always a challenge. And so we're solving the interface. And so when, no matter what they're actually trying to do, they need to put fluids, they need to put nitrogen and helium and whatever their fuel is and whatever their oxidizer is. Most people use RP1 and LOX. Um, some people use other things. Um, they need to put those on board. No matter what the mission is, they need these inert gases and they need oxidizer and, and propellants and things like that. So we're enabling that, that portion. Think about it this way. Every car on the road. Well, okay. Let me put it this way. Every car on the road either needs electrons or fuel, right? Um, let's just take fuel for now because it's a little bit easier. There's a million different electrical plugs for, for cars right now, but um, every car needs gas, no matter what it looks like every ICE car, but it's the same hole <laughs> that you put the nozzle in. Sure. We're trying to sell the nozzle and the, and the, the, the plug. So no matter what it is you're trying to do, you can pull up to a gas station. Now, the next piece for us is building that gas station. Because right now people are buying our interface and they're still fumbling with their gas station. We want to sell gas stations. And we've started to. And in fact, if you could see through my computer screen, there's a, a large shop 
um, where we're putting together these mobile fueling containers for the Air Force right now. And we're, and we're working to sell those to rocket companies as well. So cool. So the, the QDs are the first sort of product. You yeah. build them. And, and did you build them to spec? So did the rocket company say, look, we need them this wide and this long and to hold this much fluid? And did, did you build them to their specifications? The original ones we did. Um, did you hold on to the IP for that? Like if it was their spec and their engineers who designed it, who owned the IP for the QDs? Did you own it, retain yeah. it, or did Yeah, they- we, we retained it. And so what we did originally is they, the, the original company needed this very one-off, very strange thing. And we designed it and we sold it to them, including we're like, yeah, you can keep, keep that IP because it was one-off enough. That, and then we went and did our own, and our own thing and redesigned um, from the ground up again. And so, um, you know, if you look at the two fittings, they're, they're very, very different because they different purposes. But what we realized with the second one was, hey, we can make these modular enough that they could go on any vehicle. And, and then those are ours and, and can go forward. So. And you own, you, you own the IP in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you getting the money to do all this stuff? The other guys wanted 100 grand up front in six months. Were you charging up front or did you raise capital? Or like, how did you get the money? Yeah, this is the part that... that I, even I am a little bit shocked. We raised no money. We, I put $1,200 in a business bank account six years ago, and we've been going ever since. Um, and we're into, you know, well into seven figures and have 20 people and flown things to space. So I don't recommend it necessarily, but what it was, was, it was a lot of drive. And it was also just a lot of niche expertise. Like I knew that that opportunity was there and, and that we could make the most of it. So the way we built those QDs was when we, we sold a few small ones. And then this company called us, the guy who was like, well, sell those QDs. And they bought mid six figures of QDs from us. And I said, great, 50% upfront. And they're like, okay. And so we used that money to go and, and get them built, get them created, test them, qualify and make sure everything was good to go sent them all out and, and then got paid on the backside. Um, but we usually, we often used through our history, we don't have to anymore, but through our history, we used billables, the profits from billables, the margin from billables to pay for hardware development. So what billables meaning hours? Yeah. Yeah. So we do a lot of consulting hours to, to all the major new space companies. What would your proportion of hardware to, to, to you know, consulting be at the, at the time of sale? Like, where were you on a proportional basis? Yeah, we were probably at it's it was probably it's probably 6633 on billables versus hardware, but I okay. see that I see that flipping in the next possibly even next 6 months. I think it could it could flip and become 66% hardware, 33% billables pretty pretty quick. We've got some stuff on the horizon. Okay, so so you've got the QDs are the first win and yep. they and they're working. What was the next product? Yeah, so the QDs were uh, were a huge win um, because it was that that first piece of trust, and it was that first thing that you could point back to and be like, "Well, we've built hardware," and 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 you know you, you take that step. And so sure. the next the next piece, and keep in mind, we've only really been the launch company for two and a half years, so we're talking very short timescales here. Yeah, um, is these mobile fueling units we're building? So we essentially had been doing design hours for companies and taking things to the point where all the drawings were released, all the parts were ordered, and then their technician teams were going off and building things. And we were saying like, yeah, you know, Godspeed, good luck, give us a call. Then we'd go down and help put it together and and do field operations and stuff. And I was just kind of like, man, we really need to get to the point where, where we're also delivering the product. And that the first time that happened was January of this year. So 
QDs were like 2018, 2019, and then 2020 was about building this next product. And, and that's taken us to, to present time. So which is the gonna, mobile fueling unit. Exactly. Mobile, mobile fueling units. Yeah. And, and when you say mobile, you're not talking about in space. You're talking about movable from one launch site to another. Am I getting that accurate? You're getting that accurate. Yeah. But you're also, you're also talking a little bit about our roadmap because we are, we are starting to work on on-orbit refueling as well. But yes, right now we're talking about there's spaceports all over the world. We are going to move these fueling units from one spaceport to another to enable vehicles to come and go and launch as needed. Cool. Let's talk about the exit. So you're two okay. years in or three years in. Yeah, two. Seems yeah. a little early. Like, what yeah. happened? Like, what? a lot this of things is... happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> a lot of things happened. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I have two kids, right? So I'm always okay. looking at them. And, you know, I found out my, my daughter was on the way after, right after I quit SpaceX for the umpteenth time. And I was sleeping on an air mattress in my brother's place eating sandwiches out of a cooler. And I was like, Oh, I've got a kid. Hmm. I got to get this going. And so I've been very, very driven. And, and I think every bootstrapper knows that feeling of like, Hmm, I'm staring at the ceiling fan as I am trying to fall asleep and I'm adding up all the money that I have versus the money coming in versus the money I owe everybody else I'm trying to make sure it's greater than zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm trying to make sure it's in the black and not in the red and, and just a lot of stress. And then you couple in the fact that we're, we could be, taking money home and doing really well, but instead we're reinvesting that because we have this vision for hardware because we just have this like really cool team. That's like, we want to build space hardware from Alaska. We want to live where we love and we want to build, do the things we love, no compromise. And so it's like really, really tight, really, really stressful at times. It would also be times because cash flow was lumpy with hardware where you're just rolling and you're like, Oh, everything's great. We're going to live forever. And so what I wanted to do was I, I realized through the course, and I understand the pandemic's ongoing, but during the, the early days of the pandemic, I realized I was forced to slow down a little bit. I'm working from my kitchen table. Um, and and my, my wife, Jenny, is also an entrepreneur. So we're like running two businesses out of this little apartment at the time. And I was just like, man, like something has to like change so we can get to that next, next level. And I was, I realized just how almost, almost, audacious is the friendly word. Hubris is the, is the possibly more accurate <laughs> unfriendly word. I was just like, man, we have, we've been dodging some bullets and we're coming away with the feeling that we're bulletproof and, and that's not the right <laughs> takeaway. I was like, how can we scale to the next level? How can we get these big NASA contracts? How can we get these big, you know, prime, these big things to, to some of the big established players? Um, because I, I realized how fragile we were in that if, you know, we're not building a SaaS business where maybe you're charging $5 a month to a million people. We're charging maybe $5 million or a million dollars to five people. Right. And so mm -hmm. I was like, Oh gosh, if, if, if these people go away or something happens to their business, we're not very resilient. So how do we get, how do we build some more resilience and how do we get to the next level? We can't stay here. And so I had three options on the table. Um, I, I had turned down over the years, VC, um, traditional VC, just, wasn't really aligned with with our vision. We 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 built believe in this calm company thing. Like we work really really hard when we're here, but then we go home and we enjoy our families and our lives, and we enjoy being in Alaska where we love to be and blah blah blah. So I didn't want us to all just be like sprinting through these like VC cycles. And and I also believe the market is so early, really in new space that we don't know what it is. Like a lot of people say, oh, launch is figured out. I disagree. Being on the inside, launch isn't figured out. And we have a huge opportunity there. But there's these other bigger opportunities on space, uh, on orbit refueling and 
propellant depots, there's lunar opportunities. And so it's like, man, how do I get there? But how do I stay flexible enough to respond and go where it needs, where it needs to be go? VC wasn't compatible with that. That was like, sit in a room, have the vision, go full speed. And I was like, well, that seems reckless to me um, because it's so early. We had this revenue-based opportunity where it was like, oh yeah, you pay X amount out until this cap or in perpetuity. And it didn't quite feel like the right fit. Wait, sorry, that, that's the second option you were that was Sorry, and that was the second so, option, yeah. So describe that one for me. That's like an earnout where you 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 would have worked for a company for a period of time and help me just yeah, clarify just that a, a bit more. It was just a different type of, it's, it's revenue-based financing is kind of like this, this, this hot new thing. There's, there's a company or not a company. There's a fund I really, really like that's doing it. We weren't talking to them about it, you know, in case they watch this, I don't want them to think I'm, I'm talking about them. There's a fund that we're really, we really love and, and, and work with, but it, it wasn't them. We were talking to another fund that was kind of like anti-unicorn, you know, they're like, oh yeah. And, and I have friends that raised from them and they love them. And I think if I was running a different type of business, it would have been perfect. I loved the team. I love their vision. They're so super cool. But for us, it was just like, well, you can take on, you know, high sixes to low sevens of, of cash from these guys. And then you're paying back based on your revenue year over year, like some percentage of your revenue, you're paying it back okay. to, to a three or a 10 X cap. I can't remember. And then they also get a warrant. If you go and do another round, they get clued in on that because they have a warrant from going early. It's a great model. It's a model. I think for a lot of businesses is perfect, but it just didn't really fit us because again, with hardware being so lumpy, I was just like, well, they might come into the year and I might have all my cash tied up in this project. And then I got to give you 7% of what's left or whatever the number was that could hurt me. And so it didn't, it didn't feel right for me in that and way. And that's by the way, just called revenue-based financing. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. that's what, what people are calling it. Um, and I also had, I had some local, local investors try to do the same thing, but it was also that that was not really a great option for us either. So yeah, it's, it's getting, it's getting hotter. And I think it's something that makes, can make a lot of sense. Um, you know, if you're building a, a product, a consumer product and you need cash for like tooling or to buy materials, I think it makes a lot of sense. Cause then you're just going to sell a bunch of these things and give them that in that percentage. But for us, we're still figuring it out and, and get it. And it's, and it's lumpy enough that it was like, man, I can't guarantee you 7% of the revenue. I might need that. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. um, that's kind of where we were at. Um, the third option was this new company called Voyager space. Um, they are, they are the, the non-private equity, private equity. And, you know, so they're not private. They are technically, you know, they're rolling up different companies, but they have this 30 year vision. Um, to enable humanity's most audacious missions, I believe is the tagline. And man, like they, they really back it. I could tell from the first phone call with Matt, their, their president CEO, that it was like going to be a good fit because he was just, he's like, cool, man, tell me about your business. I tell him about my business. He's like, all right, great. He's like, we know you from X, Y, and Z. We know about your business because we back channeled it. Like he'd already done all this work. And he's just like, we, we are interested in a majority acquisition of the launch company. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, dope. And, and, uh, I, I just hadn't really thought about it. And, um, and we talked a few times and it's like, man, these guys are a good fit. And their CEO, Dylan, Dylan Taylor has like really great experience in finance and he has really great experience bringing companies public. And I was like thinking about my own career, you know, when you're, when you're in, in your early thirties and you're kind of like running your business, like, well, how am I leveling up? And what am I doing this thing the next level? And I was like, man, this is a team that can get us in with NASA and with, and help us go international and help us do all of these big things. And if we win something big, they can back us financially to actually make that happen, you know? 
And they loved our vision. They loved our team. And culturally, we were aligned. Culture is like number one for us here. And so it just, it felt like a really, really great fit. And, I didn't, and we decided to let me it. just Let me just pause you there. So the VCs yeah. have pitched you. You had these guys revenue-based. Did Matt approach you spontaneously? Or, or how did, like, was it sort of out of the blue? You get this call from this guy named Matt. And you're like, well, how can I help you? <laughs> Almost. Pretty close. We were working with the first company they acquired, Altia Space Systems. We were working with them on a bid. <sighs> And they okay. were like, well, what's the deal with this company? And Aussie's like, man, you know, they're, they're cool. They do this and X, Y, and Z. And then they started to dig in. But I had actually talked to Dylan maybe six months before. And he's just like, oh, yeah, man, you guys sound great. But you're a little little early. Let's wait and see where things go. And then six months later, we just had, ended up having an incredible year. And Ball, at Ballpark, where are you revenue-wise at this point, if you're allowed to talk about it or, or number of employees or some proxy for size. Yeah. Proxy for size. This, this summer we hit, we hit 30 during some surge work. Um, but we hover, we hover just, just around or over 20, usually 20 employees. Yeah. But at the start of at 2019, we had one at the start of 2020, I think we had four or five. Talk about launch company. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and so, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And we have a roadmap of, of doing a lot more. I mean, I, I had not probably share actual revenue numbers because of some stuff we're doing with Voyager, but I would say like every year we've more than doubled our, our revenue thus far. So right. um, been growing quick. And so, so what was your, so, so Matt says, Hey, we'd like to take a majority. We'd like to buy your company effectively or buy a large exactly. majority of it. What was your reaction then? Man, I'll be honest. I don't think we have enough time to go into my reaction. I really, I really, I, I felt great about it because I was aligned with the vision and I love what they're doing. But there's also like, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. There's like this ego part where it's like, well, I've turned down money before. We've always found a way. Somebody else's, you know, name is on the paycheck. You know, just like, it doesn't say launch company on the paycheck anymore. Just one of those things. And I was like, what do you actually care about? And I was like, what I actually care about is having resilience. I care about being able to execute on our vision. And like, when you look at our team, like people have, kids and mortgages and dogs and dreams. Right. And so it's like, man, what is the best step to take care of them and to let them level up in their career and have some resilience and have some upside. And I was like, okay, like this is it, this is, this is the way to do it. So I really had to like remove my ego from it. Um, easier said than done, but you know, and it, and it took a little bit of time to, to do, but I know, you know, we're, I guess almost exactly seven months later. Um, did I do that math right? Yeah. Then seven months later, we're, I'm super happy with it and it's, and it's going really well, but it was hard. Um, it was hard for me because you want to just keep doubling down and keep betting, but this was the ultimate way to double down because they're in, they're, they're helping us build process. They're helping me level up on, on forecasting and financials and all those things that I never actually learned. You know, I'm an engineer running a company. I'm just doing my best. And, um, and so it's been really, really great for, for all of us, I think overall. And so at what point did, did, did Dylan or, or Matt raise the specter of, of, of the number they wanted to offer you that did, it sounds like they initiated the conversation. Did they give you a letter of intent or did they, yeah. they talk about it verbally or like, what was that? Like, how did that come up? It was, I think it was two phone calls to a letter of intent being in my inbox, which helping other founders now, I think was the biggest signal that these guys weren't goofing around. I think you can have these phone calls with people and they, and they talk to you and they want to blah, blah, blah. These guys did not do that. They were like, Here's what we're talking about. Here's what we think. If this ballpark makes sense to you, let's send an LOI and let's like dig in. And I, man, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, because it's respectful of everybody's time and 
that's just how we operate. So yeah, I think it was second phone call, maybe even first, but second phone call, I think we were talking numbers and multiples and then LOI hit the inbox. I mean, within seven days from phone call to LOI. Um, and, and, and when you talk multiples are, are they like, how did you guys think about multiples? Because I, I'd imagine the multiple on hardware is very different than, than the billable hour stuff. What, how did you guys think about multiples? Yeah, it was, it was, it, it was interesting. I had, um, I have, I have a friend that runs a search fund and, um, and, uh, he helped me kind of behind the scenes, um, share it really great guy in Toronto. And he helped me behind the scenes kind of think about the correct multiples. And I ended up not having to think about it because they, they came with that multiple. <laughs> and so I was just like, okay, this works. He, he, they came with the multiple share. It thought was fair. So yeah, of, like, exactly. what was share telling you like in, in a range, like, can you give us a kind of a range of what he thought was like? Reasonable? Yeah, I think, I think five to seven on, on rev or times revenue. Yeah. Or EBITDA, I guess. Um, I think five to seven on EBITDA is, is something that we had considered like a, a good range. That's not, I won't commit and say that's necessarily the range that we went with because, you know, I don't want to air too much out, but I think he was saying, you know, look for something in that range, or if you can't get that range, look for other upside, you know, like what are the other reasons you're doing this? Um, with hardware, it's, it's, it can be hard because, margins can be thin, especially early on as you're building process and you're buying tooling and blah, blah, blah. But we were billables heavy heading towards hardware. And so our margins were pretty strong. And so it, it, it was able to, we were able to make it work really well. Got it. And, and, and was the offer, I'm assuming usually with a private equity deal, you know, it's like, we're, we're going to buy 60% of controlling interest, but we want you to leave a portion in. Was that the structure they used with, with you? So you've got some some, some skin in the game still. As, as exactly. Well. Yeah. So we, we were able to structure it where I still have, you know, single largest individual shareholder type thing. So there's a lot of upside because they were very clear. They're like, dude, we're not trying to take this and just stuff it into something else. Like we want the launch company to be the launch company and to work with all these other companies to like build this bigger machine and build these bigger opportunities. And so um, it was one of those things where like we, they really wanted me to stay engaged and, um, and they gave me really nice terms that like showed me like, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll give you this, um, and not tie it to X, Y, and Z. And, but you're saying you're going to stay. And I'm like, of course I'm going to stay. Like, I'm going to do this, that, and the other, but you know, it's great as a bootstrap founder to be able to take liquidity to the point where for me, it's not de demotivating. I think maybe in some cases it could be, or I think VCs certainly feel that way if you're trying to do secondaries or whatever, like, oh, that's good to motivate you. It's like, actually it lets me sleep at night. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it lets me not worry. Um, and now I can really bring my focus to the game and, and go to the next level and make that second large chunk worth, you know, a lot more. And also they're helping us set up um, shares for the team. So we immediately set up kind of a form of profit sharing. And we also, are setting up longer term, some other great ways to take, we've always just done informal bonuses that were as part of a percentage, but now we're going to have a formalized program to keep people tied in and, and let them sh obviously share in the value they create. And so like um, all of those pieces were in place from like second phone call and, hmm. and then came through on LOI. Cause I was just like, these are the things that are important to me. And they're like, cool, this is what's important to us. So Long answer to a short question. I'm unfortunately I have to beat around the bush a little bit, but no, no, I, I totally appreciate that. But I, but yeah. I, I, I like, you know, hearing that there's a structure in place where they, they've got the majority, but then you, they've left you in, in, to participate in a significant way in, in the exactly. future side. That makes a ton of sense. 
And what has been the experience, like what's the biggest difference for you in the last six, six, seven months compared with the seven months previous, I get yeah. the fact that you can sleep at night now and, sure. and that, and you know, you're, you, you're not worried about the, the basic stuff, but I'm, I'm thinking of your day-to-day work and what ways has that changed is that you're now majority owned by someone else? Yeah. You know, really the biggest promise they made was we're not going to mess with what works your company to run, you know, so I've got a board now, never had a board. I've got a board now. I'm one of the seats and there's, you know, other people as well. And, but our, on our matrix, we have a board matrix, like mo- almost every decision is mine. And so m- what's great is that most things haven't changed, but I'll tell you the single best part. And what I realized I was missing is that there is now somebody else who cares about the finance side. I was the only person in the company really dealing with finance. We have a a fantastic um, operations director. Um, and she's just unbelievable. Rachel Williams, big shout out. Um, and she runs a lot of the finance and she, she also has like stepped into that role. But prior to that, it was just me kind of being like, you know, there was always this tension of God, man, we need more tools or we need more people. Or we need this. And I'm like looking at the numbers. And I'm like, well, you know, gang, we got to maybe figure out how to do this. I used to joke, there's this fine line between scrappy and crappy. And, you know, we've got to just like toe this line. And, and so now it's really great because we're doing forecasts six years out. We're building budgets. We're like, I'm like, Hey, I think this is going to be tight. We're going to have this cash flow issue here. Cool. Let's brainstorm how we can smooth that lump out. Like I have somebody else in the owner's box who is trying to say like, Hey, how can we help you succeed? What do you need? And then there's capital available to make pushes or to take big bets or to do things. And that, man, that is a very freeing feeling because it, now it feels like a sandbox. I mean, we can just go play. So cool. What is the, a board matrix? I don't know that. Yeah. It's like an approval matrix, right? So like Ben can spend up to this amount of money without asking, but anybody Ben can hire or fire Ben can do just the things like that you need to like go to the board for versus like daily operations running. Like you know, should, should Ben commit to this hundred million dollar contract? It's like, maybe you should talk to the board because what if you're signing up for more than you can chew or, you know, it's, it's just things like that. Um, Got it. but, but yeah, and that was, that's actually been nice for me because I like having somebody that can bounce ideas off of things. Like, hey guys, this is what I'm really thinking about. And one of our board members is super active with me, um, day to day almost where we're just getting up and running. He's like, okay, cool. Like I get how your business works now. I see how everything is and, and we're structuring it in a way that makes sense for us, but in that lets us like grow and build operations and build process. And so like that for me, you know, you talk about engineering for me, engineering systems for a long time was really, really fun. Now engineering this company is really, really fun. Like building all the processes, building the autonomy, um, investing in the people, like all those things that like make the mission happen. It has become like my new passion and something I really, really love. That's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. It's um, it's interesting. I'm asking about the the private equity group because I, I I did an interview a little while ago with a woman named Sherry Deutschman. She built a company, uh, and one of the key parts of her culture was an employee profit sharing program, and she got acquired by a private equity group. And months after the acquisition, they came in, looked at the line item variable comp, and they said, "Okay, well, let's get rid of that because that's going to lift our EBITDA by you know six percentage or whatever." And she kind of kicking and screaming, said, no, you, you can't take away that. That's a key part of our kind of culture. And they said, yeah, but you know, 
it's a huge part of the, the, the expenses of the company. We're going to get rid of it. And they got rid of it. They went from 52 employees or something like that. Sherry left. And soon after, they were down to like seven or eight of the founding you know, group of employees because they'd sort of hollowed out the secret sauce, the magic of the culture. You're running a space company in Alaska. <laughs> like, that's weird. <laughs> like, that's a pretty unique culture. You yeah. guys are into like the environment you're living in and you, you know, in your own, you want to do cool stuff. You have this whole culture of what you call it? Like a, a calm company. Yeah. In what way has having a private equity backer impacted your culture? That's a great question. To be honest, we did. And this is something I give Voyager huge props for. They did multiple AMAs, ask me anything with the team. And Matt, Matt Kuda, the COO and president just showed up and was like, what do you got for me? And our team was relentless. They're just like, what are you going to do to preserve this culture? What are the pieces of the culture here you like the best? Like, what are the, what, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? And even to the point where like, I'm a pretty straight shooting, you know, like right to the point guy. I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know? And, and Matt's just like, Matt afterwards was like, I love that that happened because it shows how much they care. Right. Like, and I was like, everybody to me, both sides responded perfectly. And so that was really great. I think, you know, I just sent a big culture email yesterday about, we did this, we do these like quarterly, you know, like all hands where it's just like, Hey, what sure. are we up to? How are we doing? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I sent a follow-up because, you know, it's starting to get dark outside and it's starting to be a change of season. We've all been inside for two years. Um, you know, things like that, or however long it's been times a little, a little yeah. strange right now, but you know what I mean? And it was just kind of a check-in and I forwarded it to, to the board and got, you know, immediate feedback. of just like, it is so good that you're vocalizing these things because a lot of people have a vision for that. They want their company to go, but they don't vocalize it. Nobody else can pick it up and play the same sheet of music and blah, blah, blah. So like culture has not been an issue. Um, hmm. And, and I've had to push hard on a, on a few things um, business-wise with, with Voyager and they've always showed up and been like, what's going on? How can we help? You know? And so I don't, I don't see a cultural issue. I think they, know that that's the secret sauce of, of launch company similar to the story you're saying is like i think they recognize like what makes us special is is the people a company is nothing but a group of people and and they're working really hard to preserve that but I, and and grow that um and i have a i have one-on-ones with with dylan and we talk about that quite often and, and i know he's aligned so those those were things we spent a lot of time on during due dill actually and it was less like ones and zeros or whatever you know accounting stuff and it was more like how's this going to feel? <laughs> you know, what's this going to really smell like? I, I had just real quick, I had friends in Ohio that went through the exact same thing that you're describing. So I was very uh, cautious. Yeah, cautious of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the toughest question out of interest that Matt fielded? You said that one question made you kind of squeam a little bit or, or uh, squirm a little bit in your seat. Our engineering director, Robert Doty, great guy, great friend. He, he just goes, yeah. Hi. Quick question here. Sounds like all of the changes you guys are talking about are going to fall on Ben and Rachel to implement Rachel being our operations director. Um, how are you going to help preserve their time and make sure they're not getting distracted from what's actually important at the business? And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> oh, that's and he's, yeah, no, it was, it's a fantastic question. And, and they were like, straight talk. They're like, while we integrate, it's going to be a little messy and we're going to have to figure this out. And we're all learning together. He's like, but we're all on the same team. We're going to figure this out and we're going to, you know, get the systems built. We're going to go from your systems, which, which work great for a team of your size. We have to transition them into systems that can, can go public and can scale and can do all these things. 
he's like, so there's, you got to just understand that we're all learning together and we're all going to do our best. And, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's the most we can ask for is like show up with a good attitude and do your best. And, and that's it. You know, hindsight's 2020. And, and I think every time I've, I've done one of these interviews, uh, I think every founder has had something, some small thing or some big thing that they would do differently if they had the negotiation over again. Yeah. In your case, you had three potential exit options, VC, the, the revenue-based financing, and then Voyager. If you could rewind the clock and do it all from scratch, what might you do differently if you had it to do over again? Yeah, I, man, you know, I think really the, the biggest thing is I, I wish that I had studied and, and researched more about the process before I went into it. That's something I, I mean, I'll spend six months picking out a television set. You know what I mean? And so, and like reading reviews and comparing this and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I just, I felt naive, you know? And I think it was one of those things. I think it's something like when people are like buying a car and, and they're like, they, they want to come off as an expert. So they don't ask dumb questions. I think I wish I would have asked a few more dumb questions along the way. And that's part of the ego possibly too, you know, but it's just like, man, I should ask more dumb questions, but I was trying to convince these guys that they were getting a, getting a smarty and not, you know, and that, that somebody that knew what they were doing. And so I was trying to, I was like fiercely Googling and doing research, but I, I wish that I would have just gotten smarter, but you're also running the business day to day. So now you've got this whole new, anybody that's been through due diligence knows it's a lot of work. You've got this whole new work cycle on top of your normal work cycle. And so, yeah, I think, I, I think researching and understanding better would have been, would have been the thing. Can you think of one dumb question that you, you should have asked? Because people are listening to this right now and they're like, I know exactly what he's saying. Yeah. I, I don't want to look like an idiot. Uh, I, I, I want to sound smart and intelligent and informed. Uh, at the same time, I, I don't know everything there is to know about selling a company. So like, what one question do you wish you maybe had an answer to that, that you now know? Man, I'll... I'll... I have to think about it. I think really the biggest thing is then the reason I wish that is not because anything happened where I felt tricked afterwards. Like, Oh, I bought the undercoating. I didn't need the undercoating or whatever. You know, <laughs> I, I, think, I think it was more about like, man, I sure did waste a lot of time on this little TLA three little acronym that I didn't understand, which sorry, what does TLA stand for? Oh, it's a joke. Whenever I, it, that's the joke is it's a three letter acronym, right? Like okay. it's just any little three letter thing you don't understand. Ah, okay. Yeah, got it. Sorry. See, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But that's the point. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where it's like, I wasted a lot of time and then and slow down the process, like hanging up on these like details and the rest of my life, I kind of try to run 80, 20, you know, like how can I get 80% of the way there on 20% of the whatever. And I didn't do that here. Cause I think I was playing a little scared. And they ultimately made, gave me some great terms that showed a lot of trust. And so I gave some things back that showed a lot of trust. And that's what Matt said. He was just like, we just got to trust each other. Like we're working together. And I, and I hear people squinching and squirming when they hear that. Yeah. Like because, me, number one. <laughs> right. Because that's true. But at, the, but at the same time, like, yes, you need to get every, you need to have good trust, you know, good fences, make good neighbors, whatever you have to have good trust built on, on the boundaries and the legal documents, and whatever, but there's always gonna be those little points where your lawyer's like, well, they could really, you know, pull this over on you. And it's like, dude, they're going to own a majority of the business. They could fire everybody tomorrow. And I mean, at some point there's a diminishing return 
on those little details. And I think I, I spent too much time on, on some of those. I'm not at all advocating that you go and sell your business without talking to a very good lawyer many, many, many times and getting yeah. everything that anything that somebody says on the phone, get it written down and agreed upon with a hard number um, and a timeline. I'm, I'm just saying that past that there's, there's little pieces, man, do, do they, do they matter? And are you going to blow up the deal on it? So for instance, you're buying a house and it's like, you know, it's going to need smoke detectors. You know, you got to do health and safety and all the good stuff, but they're like, but it's like, Oh, but the, the paint inside. And the guys are like, well, I'm going to walk away. You know, it's like, do I really care about the paint? Like I've got 30 years to paint that wall. You know, it's, it's little things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. One of the things that we talk a lot about is the, is the separation of your role as sort of like CEO, that yeah. hat, yeah. and then the role of shareholder, because right now I'm mindful that you're both in yeah. your company, you're both the shareholder, but you're also running the business day to day. What is the mechanism? If you can talk about it, if you can't, I understand by which you could be removed as the CEO and still be a shareholder. Like, how does that work? Like if, if you really screw up or they just want to get rid of you for whatever reason, like, can they blow you out and keep you like, do they have the right to do that? And, and how does that all work? Yeah, I, I won't go probably into too many specifics. Um, I, uh, but I will say that there is, there's gotta be a way to get, to get rid of a CEO. And, and you know what, and this is maybe a good example of like a detail that, that I think we spent a good amount of time on, not too much or too little where, where they're like, well, Ben, maybe you're not CEO forever. Maybe you want to go and do other things or you grow within Voyager. That's the, that's our hope. We want you to come up through the company and do all these cool things. You might have to hire a guy. They're like, now what if you're on the board and the person you hire is a nightmare or whatever, right? And they're like, we got to be able to get rid of that person. And they're like, you got to think to the future. I'm like, okay, so what's the balance of thinking to the future, but not getting hosed now? Yeah. And, and the protection, and I think one of the best ways to do it is like, there's there's ways to, to do it where it's like, were you let go at the, are you serving at the pleasure of the board and were you let go or were you let go with cause? And that we drew a line there. Um, and we also drew a line on um, essentially a, a payout that would happen if it was without cause and, and how that would work. And, it, and it's structured in kind of a, a cool time-based way where it makes, it makes a lot of sense. But also, um, you know, the cause, the cause piece is important. And I know the people out there, again, are, are going like, you can make anything look like for cause, right? And I guess that's true. But also, you know, it, that's where maybe where it comes to trust. Like, we have a good board. If I have to have every little thing built up where cause is X, Y, and Z and blah, 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 then it's like, am I, should I do this deal? <laughs> you know, but instead it's like, well, look these people want me in this thing. They, they want this to grow. The next person we hire, we're going to, if I'm not CEO forever, just saying we put somebody else in there someday, um, we will do a very good job hiring that human and, and it'll be in a similar piece. And so there's, there is these kind of sticky parts, but we did put some layer of protection where it's like cause, no cause. And then there's this like essentially both the non-compete and the payout um, are, are, there's a time mechanism to them that is variable based on, on how things work out. And so um, it, it protects people, and, but it also lets them protect their own livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 that makes But Either way, your yeah. equity would remain, Yeah, uh, that's treated separately as an, from an employment group. Yeah, there we do, we did structure a certain thing where 
where, you know, again, without going to specifics, I'm sorry, I can't, I wish I, that's the, that's another piece. I'm, I'm also used to just being like, oh yeah, here's everything I wrote down in the agreement. But like, um, but I, but I should not, um, you might get a call from Matt or Dylan on that. They'd be like, Hey buddy, not great judgment here. Um, I think there's also a piece where, um, over time you're allowed to say, I'm allowed to maybe if I want to sell X amount per year, right. Or, or whatever. And so, yeah, like it's, it's one of those things where they're like, they don't want me to have say a phenomenal year, sell everything, get out and be like, good luck out there. Right. And conversely, I don't, you know, want them to buy the rest on a down year. And so we have some mechanisms in place that make both parties happy and how that time scale would work. Got it. Got yeah. it. That's yeah. super helpful. And you've, you worked, I'm assuming with a lawyer on your end, they, they would have had the legal team, but you had one on your end. Yeah, we, we were fortunate. I think one of the things I tell bootstrappers all the time is like, what are the things you can hire away immediately? Like what, like, where is it not valuable for you to be spending your time? And where do you also, are you afraid? And for me, it was always bookkeeping and legal. And so we went out and got a lawyer we really couldn't afford. Um, and that paid huge dividends when we, eventually we went through this process because they were like, oh yeah, we'll call the M&A office in LA. And I was like, awesome. This is great. <laughs> Glad you have one of those. Cause I yeah. don't. Yeah. That's no, it, was, awesome. it was really useful for us. Ben, I, I, um, I know you got to go and this has been amazing. Um, what, where can people reach you if they want to reach out and say hi, or is like, are you a social guy? Where, where can people reach you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I am on LinkedIn, Ben Kelly, K E L L I E. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at North road, Ben, and you can always go to Ben Kelly, B E N K E L L I E.com. Um, I got a little landing page there and you can shoot a note over and say, Hey, I uh, got a little newsletter. I write about building hard things, doing it well, bootstrapping to space, things like that. I'm just getting off the ground. So come sign up and, and follow along. That's awesome. And I have a feeling that we're going to hear more from Ben Kelly in the future. I just have a sense. So I'm going to stay so. in touch. I hope and, so. Uh, I want to hear how the journey ends and we're refueling spaceships and in, in orbit <laughs> yeah. and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, you can educate me on this stuff. So ben, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for all your time. Thanks for having me on. This was great. Uh, be safe out there and have a great day. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.